Chapter 1. TV Cops versus Real Life Cops. Before I take you on the journey through my 30-year career, I first need to debunk a few TV myths. This is mainly a cathartic process for me, but if you find it helpful too, then all the better. There's a relentless focus on policing in the British news media. Police officers are portrayed as heroes when they tackle terrorists or save sick children from runaway trains on a Monday, and then as villains when they're caught up in some sort of high-profile, controversial incident on a Wednesday. This will be a recurring theme in the book. But there's also an endless fascination with the British police in TV dramas, films, fly-in-the-wall documentaries and sitcoms. This media obsession inevitably shapes public perceptions of real police officers, for better and for worse. I'm not a fan of any of the police dramas broadcast in recent years. Most of them are nonsense, but thankfully fairly harmless nonsense most of the time. However, some of them are harmful nonsense, and the worst offender, Line of Duty, is sadly one of the most popular. It's fair to say that the degree to which the British public loves Line of Duty is only surpassed by the degree to which most British police officers hate it. But why do the police hate it? Firstly, it's inaccurate in so many ways, far too many ways to mention. The plots are nonsensical and fantastical. The characters patronise each other as if their colleagues had all joined the police earlier that day. Death by three-letter acronym. Most people in the police don't understand or use any of them. However, the thing that makes police officers really annoyed is that such shows portray a dystopian version of British policing that is completely riddled with corruption. Inevitably, this will lead many viewers to believe that it must bear at least some relation to reality. Sorry, but no, it doesn't. Have there been instances of genuine corruption in the British police? Yes, there have. However, thankfully, those instances have been extremely rare. And as the saying goes, nobody hates a bent copper more than a good copper. And most coppers are good people. Therefore, when such programmes come on, most of us just roll our eyes and change the channel. As my author friend and ex-colleague Dominic Adler recently commented, it sticks in my craw when the series is lauded for its hard-hitting realism, simply because the characters say cheers a lot. As far as real pleasing goes, Line of Duty might as well be Game of Thrones with warrant cards and stab vests. A medical equivalent to Line of Duty would be a TV drama that suggests that most doctors are sexual deviants and predatory paedophiles who just can't wait to get their grubby hands all over patients and install spy cameras in the toilets. Doctors wouldn't be happy about that characterisation one little bit, and that's exactly how police officers feel about Line of Duty. I'm really sorry if you love Line of Duty, but the police advisers really should hang their heads in shame. However, I suspect that the scriptwriters completely ignore what the police advisers tell them and insist on characters doing and saying ridiculous things. So, in the spirit of helping you understand more about real policing, here are my top 20 
TV police drama irritations that conspire to make watching any of them quite a tense experience for my wife if I'm in the room. At best, I sit rolling my eyes, and at worst, I end up shouting at the TV. The following points are explicitly directed at TV scriptwriters, directors and producers who have been making these basic errors for so long now that I suspect that they've become unquestioned facts in the minds of the general public. Number one. Uniformed officers standing at attention, either inside or outside a room, where a suspect has been interviewed. I have never, ever seen a uniformed officer stood at attention like a spare prick at a wedding, outside or inside a police interview room. In case anyone hadn't noticed, the police service in the UK has barely got enough officers to deal with a burglary anymore, never mind stand around outside interview rooms for no reason. Yet scriptwriters and TV producers seem to have decided unquestioningly that uniform officers have absolutely nothing better to do than stand mute, sentinel-like and useless outside an interview room. Number two. Uniformed officers wearing their hats inside the police station. Police officers do not wear their hats inside the police station. Why would you do that? The police station is their territory, their sanctuary. They can relax, chill out, take the piss out of each other and take their hats off because they're hot, sweaty and pretty uncomfortable. Indeed, to my considerable irritation, I very rarely see police officers wearing their hats outside the police station these days, never mind inside. Number three. Blue lights left flashing on a stationary police car. This is even more annoying when it's parked on the gravel drive of a wisteria-clad house in the Cotswolds, responding to yet another middle-class pretend murder in the village. Blue lights on a police car are only ever used to facilitate progress through moving traffic when responding to an urgent call or to warn of an accident ahead or a dangerous obstruction in the road. Once you get to where you're going, you switch them off. Otherwise, you'll get a flat battery and your colleagues will quite rightly take the piss out of you. Number four. Senior officers pompously addressing junior officers as constable. Senior officers generally refer to junior officers by their first name, e.g. Paul or Sarah. There are only three categories of people who ever use that expression when addressing uniformed police officers. Firstly, government ministers at the gates of Dining Street or upper-class twits trying to avoid getting arrested for drink driving by name-dropping that they were speaking to the chief constable earlier that day. Secondly, certain pompous barristers in court who are psychologically and procedurally stuck somewhere between 1850 and 1911. Finally, left-wing students at demonstrations who think they're absolutely hilarious. In this last category, they tend to pronounce it constable, with the emphasis on the first syllable. Number five. Senior officers interviewing suspects in custody. Senior officers, including senior detectives, never interview suspects in custody. That would be done by a detective constable or a detective sergeant, i.e. someone who knows what they're doing. 
I had many skills as a superintendent, drawn from a long and varied career. However, I knew my limitations. So, unlike Adrian Dunbar in Line of Duty, I would never have wanted to sit on the opposite side of a desk and interview a suspect. Number six. Senior uniformed officers directing serious crime investigations. Uniformed officers do not direct crime investigations. Detectives run investigations, generally detective inspectors or detective chief inspectors. However, the lion's share of the work is done by detective sergeants and detective constables, all of whom wear plain clothes. Uniformed officers mostly work in the community, managing day-to-day -day policing services to the public or in corporate departments. I have nothing against uniformed officers, as I was one myself at many ranks. However, they do not investigate serious crime. Number seven. Several uniformed officers of various ranks, often a couple of police constables, a sergeant, and a completely random chief superintendent thrown in for good measure, following the detective around like extras from The Walking Dead, sitting in meetings but never saying anything or contributing anything. See point one previously regarding the loss of 20,000 officers. Number eight. Suspects in interview crumbling under pressure and confessing their guilt. Suspects almost never tell the police what they've done or admit that they are guilty. 99 times out of 100 on legal advice, they answer no comment to every single question asked of them, apart from confirming their name and date of birth. Sometimes, amusingly, they even answer no comment to that until their solicitor advises them that they can answer that question. Number nine. Surveillance officers sticking out like sore thumbs and making it completely obvious to anyone in a 200 yard radius that they're a surveillance officer. Surveillance officers are highly trained to blend into pretty much any environment. They do not wear dangly radio earpieces, speak into handheld radios, or sit in cars in broad daylight watching someone through binoculars or photographing them with a long lens camera. In reality, it's extremely difficult to spot a good surveillance team unless you've been trained as a surveillance operative yourself. Number 10. Characters following a suspect in a car on their own, driving directly behind them for miles, until they eventually gain the crucial evidence that they need. It is almost impossible to successfully follow someone driving a car without a full surveillance team of at least 10 people. You certainly couldn't do it on your own because you get stuck at the very first set of traffic lights. If you need to follow someone on your own, your best bet is probably a helicopter, if you have one handy. Number 11. Corrupt officers everywhere you look. Corrupt officers are thankfully extremely rare, and anti-corruption units identify and weed them out pretty quickly, unlike in line of duty, where pretty much everyone is corrupt. Number 12. Actors wearing police helmets that are far too big for them, which makes them look like complete idiots. Number 13. Actors wearing police caps at a jaunty angle, which also makes them look like complete idiots. Number 14. 
actors wearing police helmets with the chin strap fastened. Doubly annoying if combined with point one above. Chin straps are generally only fastened in a situation where the helmet is likely to get knocked off, e.g. in a volatile crowd control situation or pub fight or football match, when it's starting to get a bit lively. Number 15. The pathologist getting involved in the criminal investigation, e.g. BBC's silent witness. The pathologist is a doctor who conducts post-mortems on behalf of the coroner to establish a cause of death. If it's a crime or a potential crime, they will be a highly trained forensic pathologist. However, the rule remains the same. That is all. They do not get involved in the criminal investigation in any way. Number 16. The coroner getting involved in the criminal investigation. The coroner is a legal entity who represents the state and their role is to establish the facts surrounding how a person came to die, regardless of whether the death resulted from a crime, an accident or an unexpected medical emergency. They don't roll their sleeves up, jump in their car and start investigating what happened. Number 17. A prosecuting lawyer or barrister, or God forbid Judge John Deed, getting involved in the criminal investigation. The role of a lawyer is to assess whether there is enough evidence to have a realistic prospect of a conviction at court and then to present the evidence during the court process. That is it. My mother-in-law becomes very frustrated that Judge John Deed seems to get it all sorted out pretty quickly, so why on earth can the police not manage to do the same? To be fair, I suspect that her thinking is somewhat clouded by the fact that she has the hots for Judge John Deed. Number 18. Script writers completely ignoring all of the most basic legislation, e.g. the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, which has been in use since 1984 and dictates every aspect of what the police can and how they are allowed to do it. Every dramatic representation of a police investigation that I've seen in TV dramas would get thrown out of court on the first day. In truth, it would never get to court in the first place because of the cavalier approach to the rules of evidence taken by TV scriptwriters. Number 19. Crime scene investigators examining and photographing a crime scene, correctly wearing their white forensic suits, paper booties and face masks, followed by the senior detective wandering in wearing his suit and tie, with probably dog shit all over his shoes, who starts picking things up. A crime scene manager decides who enters a crime scene and anyone who they permit enters and leaves via a predefined route wearing a forensic suit. They touch nothing while they're in there and there are no exceptions regardless of rank. Forensic examiners are highly trained to do a challenging and unpleasant job. They don't need any help and senior investigators rarely enter the crime scene because they're too busy trying to identify, locate and arrest the suspect. Number 20. Cops shouting, Oi, you, come here! When they see the person they're looking for in the street, alerting said person and giving them a head start. They then run away, resulting in a totally unnecessary chase on foot, by car or both. If a police officer is looking for someone who is wanted for questioning and sees them in the street, they discreetly, 
and nonchalantly get as close as they can so as not to alert them. And then they take them firmly by the arm to stop them running away. It's much easier, but admittedly less dramatic, than huffing and puffing around the streets, across rooftops, over garden fences and jumping between railway carriages. The question for me is this. To what extent do these TV misrepresentations of policing influence the public perception of and trust in real police officers and investigators? I don't honestly know how much, but I suspect it is quite a lot. I suspect that either it creates an unrealistic expectation when the police haven't solved a given crime inside 45 minutes, or it makes people believe that all police officers are bent like in line of duty. On the other hand, maybe I and every other police officer in the country just need to switch our brains off and chill out.